do I have the clicky thing? Please, Faith. Thanks. To give you a little bit of an insight into what I do when I prepare for a sermon, I actually spend the first few days just praying. The first few days just praying. And I'll just pray. And I don't actually get sort of, you know, I'll, I'll write down thoughts and stuff like that, but nothing sort of really comes together until about Thursday or Friday as I'm doing that. Now, here's one of the things, though, which I found interesting in relation to what we're talking about today is um, distractions. It's, it's really fascinating how, like, there's stuff that I know that should be done, but for whatever reason, I won't do it. And I'll, I'll have a look. And I'll say, oh, I really should get onto this now. Okay, I'll, I'll be praying. And then, I don't know, he says, hey, Dad, we're going to have some ice cream. Yeah, right then. And I'll have some ice cream. Oh, Dad, we're going to go. We're going to go here. Can we go? Yeah, right. Oh, Dad, can you go to Kmart for me? <laughs> all right. But there's all these distractions. And then I think, well, I really should get into it, whether it be just praying. So it, it's really fascinating how, how we do this. And uh, you might experience it in your own life as well and some of the various things that you encounter. But it's very commonplace uh, for us to fall into that trap, isn't it? And what we're going to talk about today is in relation to this. See, we begin in a passage where we as the church can draw a lot of parallels from, from the nation of Israel. It's a passage that involves God's people that are given a task, but then are distracted from that task, who are then corrected and put back on track. That's essentially what it is. And, and that's why I see that parallel to myself. And, and what we're going to look at today is, one, the task that they were given, two, the identity that they have, and how the two link together, and how that applies to us. So this passage actually comes from the book of Haggai. If you look at the book of Haggai, it's only two chapters. It's a wonderful little book from the Minor Prophets. And this is the main exhortation that Haggai gives to the nation of Israel. So I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and we're going to look at when God answers apathy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Minor Prophets, and we thank you that the scriptures that have been placed within our hands are God-breathed. We thank you that it's profitable for reproof and correction, for instruction, that it's profitable for us in so many ways. And we pray, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, that by your spirit, you will open our eyes to see not only yourself, but ourselves and, and where changes need to be made in our lives. We ask, Father, that you will stir our hearts now, that as we heed not only your word, but listen to what your spirit teaches us. May we respond in obedience and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the book of Haggai, the context in which Haggai is written is found within the book of Ezra. So if you have a look at the book of Ezra, you actually have reference made to Haggai. I believe it's in chapter 5, verse 1. And Haggai takes place between chapter 5, verse 1 and chapter 5, verse 2. There are two prophets that actually rock up. Haggai and Zechariah, I believe. So, just to help bring it into a bit of context, they mean they've been exiled into captivity, and a group of people have been allowed to go back to the nation of Israel, back to Jerusalem, led by Ezra, for the specific purpose of rebuilding the house of God. There was a specific purpose to go back and build the house of God. That is what has been entrusted to them. You have Nehemiah that goes back as well and builds a, a, a wall, but they are building the house of God. And right then and there, you can see a comparison between them and us in regards to what they have to build and what we have been called to build 
also. But as always, whenever you are about the work of God, whenever you're about fulfilling God's purposes, there will always be opposition. In the book of Ezra, we read about this opposition first coming very subtly in, the, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, when you have a bunch of people who are not Israelites, a bunch of people who actually come alongside of verses 1 to 3 and say, hey, we want to help build the temple with you. To which they said, no, no. Basically, it was a challenge to compromise. Compromise is really interesting, isn't it? Because that's what we done. That's what we do in our own individual walks with Jesus, where we attempted to make a compromise, to settle a little bit here and a little bit there. They said no. Ezra and all the priests, the high priests there said, no, we don't want your help. Thank you very much, but we'll be on our way. Then it came down blatantly, blatantly where they appealed to various kings to say, look, man, we want to stop this because this shouldn't be taking place. Even though the Israelites were given a direct decree from King Cyrus of Persia to be able to do this. They had had permission from a Gentile king to say, you go back and you do this. And what happens in verse 24 of chapter 4, we read this. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The amount of time it takes place, because we're told when they go, when they have Cyrus, the king of, where they were, Cyrus, the king of Babylon, to Darius, the king of Persia, the amount of time it takes between that point and this point now is 10 years. 10 years they stopped building the temple. 10 years they failed to fulfill the calling that was placed on their lives to be able to go and build the house of God. 10 years that the house of God stood there unfinished. And I think, wow, that's absolutely amazing. The reformer, Martin Luther said this, said that humanity cannot exist in a vacuum, which basically means this, that whenever you take one thing away, you replace it with something else. It, it, for example, if, you're a, if, if you ever smoked, and I've, I've, never, oh, I've, I've tried smoking once, but I'm an asthmatic, and then it played with my asthma, so I stopped because, yeah, anyway, that's another story. But if you smoked and you're addicted to smoking, sometimes you'll replace it with something else, don't you? You'll stop smoking, you might eat something, you might eat instead as a replacement. Uh, my older brother, who's the minister down of a church in, in Melbourne, I spoke with him and I says, bro, there was never a time I remember when you did not have a girlfriend. You just always had to have a girlfriend. And he, and he actually said to me, yeah, I always had to have a girlfriend. So he would move from one to the next. He, could never, he just couldn't be content in being single. He had to replace the girl with another girl. Praise God that he worked a wonderful work of grace within his heart. Now he's on fire for the Lord, proclaiming the gospel down in Melbourne. But you see what I mean? That's what we're like as people. You take one thing away and you replace it with something else. This is what the Israelites did. They were there to build the temple. The temple stopped. And what's interesting is that they replaced that action not with idolatry, not with pagan rituals. They replaced this idolatry with themselves. They became more concerned with their own personal comfort and security. So in the passage we read this in Haggai chapter 1, Verses 1 to 7, uh, 1 to 7, yes, says this. Thus says the Lord, God of hosts, this is verse 2, sorry. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, 
Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It is in this statement that I want to draw from this morning. Consider your ways. It's a phrase that causes us to pause, to examine, to think, to evaluate, and to choose. Consider your ways. It's easy to say, uh, for it, it's, it's easy to say, or it's in a way like having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Consider your ways to walk in one way, and if it's not going the way you want, well, maybe you need to stop and think about where you're actually headed. Consider your ways, for it is possible to be about the work of the Lord outwardly, but inwardly being distant and selfish the whole time. Consider your ways, because this is exactly what the Pharisees did, who had a form of godliness and appeared to be so pious and so holy and so righteous, and yet they were furthest away from Jesus than everybody else. Consider your ways. For the definition of insanity, as we heard through Rick Warren's series, is to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Consider your ways. The modern day equivalent for me is this. Come on now. Think about it. Come on now. I've said it to my kids when I'm talking with Jamal or Isaiah and they make a, rare, a bad choice. I'm like, come on now. Think about it. This is essentially what we are told right now. This is essentially what the Israelites are told. Come on now. Think about it. For the people of Israel here, it was a call to evaluate what they were doing. For 10 years, they weren't doing what they were called to do. And because they had to consider their ways, because they had to come on now and think about it, it had to give them a chance to actually assess and reassess why they were there. And so when I look at this first point, when I look at this first point, for them to consider their ways or to consider your ways, starts off with this, regarding your calling. Consider your ways regarding your calling. And that's in verse 2. Read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Did they have opposition? Yes. Did they have hardship? Yes. Were there trials? Yes. But to stop for 10 years doing the call that God had placed on their lives, I think that becomes very weak the further along it goes. This is a challenge to the people to examine their excuse and to examine their calling. Consider your ways. How does one justify remaining inactive for 10 years? Consider your ways. What is the excuse that deems something so important that the call placed on them is relegated to, it's not yet, it's not yet. To consider your ways, what reason was arrived at in order to look at the unfinished building the unfinished temple, and say, that's okay. 
What is it? And you know what it is? It's themselves. It's themselves. That's what the priority was for them now. It was all about them. For whatever the reasoning, whatever the excuse, whatever the justification, the word of the Lord through Haggai is consider your ways. He's saying, come on now, examine what you're doing. He's saying, have a look about it. Think about what you're doing, about what you're supposed to be doing. See, here's what's fascinating. When you have and when you know what your calling is, then you know when you've strayed from it. When you know what you're called to do. You see, this here, the unfinished temple, this would have been a reminder to them why they were released in the first place. Because you know why they were released? To build this building. That was their purpose. That was the whole reason they were given permission by a Gentile king to say, go back and build. And so every day when they would have woken up and seen that, they would have responded one of two ways. They would have said, well, I really should get to that. Or they would have said, meh, it's okay. That's, those are the only two things, really, because that was a continual reminder for them. This is what's called a plumb line. And the plumb line, or the temple, was to show the people of Israel where they had gone wrong. Do you guys know what a plumb line is used for? A plumb line, Brad? To make sure that something is straight. Exactly. You hold it, hold it like this, and it gives you a definitive straight line, and everything you measure up against that line will tell you whether it's actually 90 degrees going straight up and down or not. For the people of Israel, the temple was their plumb line. Is to show them that they were not fulfilling the purpose for which they were liberated for. I want you to remember that thought. The purpose for which they were liberated for was to build the house of God. That was the plumb line. Do you guys know what this is? It's called the spirit level. A spirit level to help you know when something is flat, when something is either flat or upright. Those two things, whether straight up and down, vertical, or flat as can be, horizontal. That's what those things are for. They are there to give you a gauge as to where you were. The temple of God that was unfinished was the people's plumb line to say, you are not doing what you've been called to do. You're not fulfilling, you're not fulfilling the purpose for which I released you. And that's absolutely amazing. And this is, what there is, this is why it's somewhat apathetic on the people of Israel because they knew how far they had strayed from what they were called to do and they did nothing about it. And they did nothing about it. <clears throat> so where did they fall? When it comes to this first point, the fall came from forgetting the purpose for which they received their liberty. They were set free from captivity to build, not to farm, not to establish their homes, not to establish their families, not to import or export goods. They were set free to build, specifically to build the house of God. Once that is lost, once that is forgotten, once that is impaired, then the actions that follow will lead one away from what God intended and ultimately from God's blessing. That's what will happen. We see this evident in the consequence that the people would suffer. That if we fail to remember our calling, then a life of frustration of static immobility, and even from growth will occur for us as well. Because think about this. This is where I make the comparison between the people of Israel and us. What are we called to? Who are we called to? What is the purpose that God has given to us, not only as a church, but as individuals? Do we understand 
who we are? Do we understand what our calling is? Because if we do, then we know and understand how far we strayed from what God has called us to be doing. Make sense? That's the comparison that we have. And see, this is what happens for the people of Israel. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. For Israel, the effort to reap from the efforts resulted in little return. The hunger is never satisfied. The thirst is never quenched. For everything they wear, they're never warm enough. For everything they try to hold on to, it's released. Nothing is ever held. This is the reality of life if it is lived focused on oneself and centered around ourselves. Yes, there may be some temporal comfort. There may be some acknowledgement from people, but Jesus shared about this idea when it came to the parable of the rich man, didn't he? When you look in Luke chapter 12, Verses 20 and 21, you have the rich man who sits there and says, oh, I have so much, let me break down my barns and build greater barns because I, need, I have so much wealth. Essentially, that's what it is. He invested into himself. What does Jesus say to him? I didn't put it up there if you want to look at it. Read Luke chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. It says this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We can apply such parallels to us as the followers of Jesus Christ, as a church, and as I said before, as individuals. For we too have had callings placed on our lives. And we too have a calling that states for us corporately as a church. For example, we have callings such as this, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The call to go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel, Mark 16, 15. And on the authority of Jesus Christ, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Calls we lay to the side because, well, someone else can do it. Calls we ignore because we say to ourselves, I don't know enough. Calls, calls we might even just sit there and, and blatantly disobey because we think it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, I find it really difficult to do such things as this. The fact that I, I remember when, when my daughters were younger and they would share with their aunties and uncles, would it make them feel comfortable? No, but I, th I think I understand the reason why they shared that with them. You know why? Because they had a love for God and they had a love for people. They loved their family members so much, they want to communicate that love to their family members, irrespective of how uncomfortable it made them feel. Jirel is doing that over there now. Sharing with his cousins, sharing with his aunties and his uncles. And, and what's really fascinating is this, is that he's like, wow, because he loves them and wants them to experience the joy that he's experienced. And, and I listen to that, and I, I condemn myself for not loving the same way, for not expressing that same understanding and that same willingness and that same urgency. But these are calls placed on our lives as a church. And, and, and what's our reasoning for not doing it? This is the condemnation for us as individuals and as a church, just like the temple was for the people of Israel. The reasons why we lay things aside, the reasons why we don't. 
Now, I don't know whatever the reasons are. Like, I mean, I know my issues. But the one reason we should is more than enough. Is more than enough. So we have these calls. Calls we lay and put on a secondary, of secondary importance. Because we may even say this, it's not time yet. It's not time. Well, the scriptures do teach that today is the day of salvation. And to think that you have the opportunity to share with someone and you don't, and I've done this, and you don't, you realize the failure that you did, not for yourself or for anyone else, but to your Lord. That, that's all. That's who you're accountable to. That's who you've got to have an answer to. Now, this is a call for us as a church, but it goes even further than that, even for us as individuals. In, in 1 John chapter, this is a call for us, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 to love one another just as he commanded us. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, to submit to those who have rule over us. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to pray for our leaders. These are all calls placed upon our lives that we've been called to fulfill for the glory of God. And it plays a part in building. It plays a part in building. And I think that's absolutely amazing. Once again, we might sit there and not do it because I might look funny or I don't have the time or I, I don't want to because I don't like them. I mean, even things within the church, it's, if we know that this is the call to build in these areas, we can look around and be somewhat overwhelmed by the sheer size of the task. I mean, in all honesty, if you have a look at that, okay, Okay, and, and this is just scratching the surface regarding the calls that have been placed in our lives according to the Scriptures. And we understand that. You can get into specific roles about husbands, wives, children, parents, all that sort of stuff. Employers, employees, we can get into all of those. But I want you to consider your ways when it comes to the fulfillment, the fulfillment of these calls, of this call. And I want you to take away this one thought. Jesus would never have bestowed such a task upon us if they couldn't be done. He would never bestow such a call upon us if it couldn't be done. Uh, Brad, Brad shared with me a great thought. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Brad shared a great thought with me when I, I, when I gave him the, uh, the Bible challenge in regards looking at the Bible through the Gospel of Matthew and picking out views and thoughts about discipleship. And so Matthew chapter 10, he shared these really cool thoughts about me. I want to read. Thank you so much. Am I sweating that much? It's pretty bad, eh? It's like, it's pretty bad. I, I, I can feel it. I can feel it rolling down my head. My head must be so shiny at the moment. Okay. But in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we read this. And he, Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is what I thought was really interesting with the thought Brad gave me. I actually shared it on the devotional wall. Jesus trusted his disciples. He trusted them. Were they perfect? No. 
Far from it. Would they make mistakes? Oh, yes, definitely. But Jesus trusted them with an amazing message and an amazing task of taking this message and transform the world with it. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. The fact that he would entrust such a thing to these normal people. This is how Jesus does it. You want to know how to fulfill your call? Then it comes down to one, knowing what Jesus called you to, yes. But more important than that is knowing Jesus. Is knowing Jesus, and that's how he works. See, he would never have entrusted such a responsibility to just anyone. He didn't entrust it, this amazing call. He didn't trust it to them because they were perfect, because they were far from it. He entrusted this call to them because they were faulty, because they were not capable. If you remember some of the greatest words of encouragement to us as Jesus' disciples is this one, that in our weakness, we're made strong. That's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 26, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 that it's not the strong, that it's not the wise or noble, but the foolish and base things that God uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 26, sorry, chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. If you want to turn there very quickly, I'll just read it. You don't have to. I'll just read it to you if you so wish. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read this. I'm reading from the ESV. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, with the big call placed upon us, and as overwhelming as it may seem, it stems from knowing intimately who Jesus is, that you naturally fulfill that calling. The reason I say that is because now I've been married 25 years. I've been married 25 years. This year, actually, yeah, the 30th of this, 30th of this month is my anniversary, which will celebrate 25 years I've been married. And in that time, are there responsibilities as a husband? Yes. Are there responsibilities as a father? Yes. There are so many responsibilities. And if you look and itemize every responsibility of what you do as a dad and what you do as a husband, that's, that's a big list. And, and, and I think even greater for mums. I think even greater for mums. This massive list. But what's fascinating is this. I didn't deliberately go out of my way to change who I was as a man when I became a husband. That happened naturally. Why? Because of my love for my wife and my wife's love for me. Am I a great dad? Yes. No, I'm not. I'm not a great dad. But <laughs> am I a great dad? I'm, 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 okay. I'm an okay dad. I'm an okay dad. But when I look at my kids, when it came to raising my kids, I didn't sit there and make an itemized list of how I'm supposed to rate, raise great kids. And I've got great kids. I've got great kids, and I'm so thankful for them. My wife and I sometimes sit down and talk to, us, to each other and just say, man, our kids are great. What happened? Like, we know it's of God. We know it's of God. But God, because of our love for our kids, 
enabled us to raise and invest into them so they could become the young adults, the young men and young women they are today. But I didn't sit down and have a list and check it out. I didn't sit there, oh, Faith, good job, check. Emily, great dad, check. Nathaniel, nice head. He's got a, he's got a really nice head, shaped head, my son. I really like it. Check. We didn't, we, didn't have this, we didn't have this list of things we checked off. It was because it was just a natural outworking of our love for them and their love for us. Does that make sense? So it does with the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. The calling that we have placed upon our lives naturally is fulfilled as we draw closer to Him. And you find that that love changes you. You'll find that that love gives you an understanding of your calling. You'll understand that that love will help you to sacrifice and leave, leave aside the things of this world and be consecrated to the things of Him because it's that love that transforms. That's why it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not, it's not, it's not the harshness. It's not the discipline of God. It's not the harshness of God. It's not the judgment of God that leads you to repent. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And this is what the goodness of God does here for the people of Israel. That as He exhorts them, as He challenges them, as He charges them, they in turn will step and go, okay, let me reevaluate. Let me consider my ways regarding my calling. You see, if we forget our calling as the people of Haggai as they did, then there arises a discontentment in our Christian life, a dissatisfaction with everything that we do, a frustration of things that we participate in. This is when you hear that discontentment and the dissatisfaction and that frustration, you know what that is? That is the little return. That is the always hungry. That is the always thirsty or never warm enough. That's what that is because the focus is different. We've forgotten our calling. We've forgotten who we are, which leads us to our second point. Consider your ways regarding your priorities. And this is from verse 3 and 4. You see, not only were they guilty of forgetting the purpose for which they were freed, but because of the opposition they experienced that prevented them from working, they did what many of us do in similar situations. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? When you desire to be about the work of the Lord, building something that lasts to eternity, building something of significance that the Lord has called you to, and you don't see the immediate results, or it doesn't happen as quickly as you'd like, or exactly in the manner that you would like it to, then we do what Israel did. We turn inward. We focus on ourselves. For the people of Israel, it was, I can't do what I'm here for, therefore I will build my paneled house. I will establish my comfortable home. I will earn my security, but God in his grace to them and his grace extends to them the challenge again in verse 7, to consider your ways. A challenge that is coupled, that is coupled with an actual instruction in what to do. And I really like this. See, there's a futility in trying to move forward without adhering to God's ways or to God's heart. It is why the Lord reiterates this. See, look in verse 8. He says this. So he says, consider your ways. And then he says, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
So basically what he says is this, you consider your ways, consider your ways. Whatever it is that you're going through, when you look at your priorities, okay, you must look at your priorities in the context of God's heart, not your own, of God's will, not your own. And so he says, consider your ways, this is what you do. You go back to what you were called to. You go back to what I freed you for. What I want you to do is I want you to go and build the house. And because if you don't, well, you're going to experience the consequences once again. So, because these were the consequences once again, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And it goes through all over again. We won't read all that. You can read it if you, were, if you wish. So not only was it about forgetting or ignoring God's call, but it was also about having the wrong priorities. You see, prioritizing the things of God is all about having things in its right place or in the right order. You prioritize things in your life. And you know this, Monday morning, you prioritize your work. You'll get up and you head off to work. Why? Well, it's a priority. I mean, you've got to do it. You have your mortgage, you've got to pay your bills. And yeah. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying don't build a house that is a panel house for yourself. I'm not saying don't have a job and support your family. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't invest into your family. I'm not saying don't invest into your job. I'm not saying any of those sorts of things. Please don't misunderstand me. What I am saying is that everything that needs to be done must be done in the greater context of God's heart and God's will for you as an individual, okay? It's about having the first things first because in all honesty, the job that you have, God's given that to you. The, the influence that you have, that was a blessing that your God had imparted to you. The relationships you have, that is what God has entrusted you. Whether they are non-Christians or Christians, they have been entrusted to you for your care and how you can draw those individuals closer to Jesus. That's what those things are in your life. So it's about having the right things in the right place. It's about prioritizing Him in our workplace, prioritizing Him in our homes, prioritizing, prioritizing Him in the church, with our friendships, with our, with our influence. It's not saying don't care, take care of those things, but allow the, don't allow the things of earth to take precedence over the things of heaven. That's what it is. Everything has its place. Our needs need to be seen in the greater context of God's heart. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 26 and 31 to 34, which you know. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, here is where our need has to be focused on the things of heaven. When we prioritize the things of God, when we prioritize His call and His values, then what is reaped is abundance. 
instead of a little. What is eaten actually satisfies. What is drunk actually quenches. What is worn actually protects. What is saved or invested into actually lasts. Not because God is rewarding you for something or for doing His will, but He's doing it because you're fulfilling God's purpose for your life. And this is what Haggai experiences. Have a look at this. Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Stop there. And, and adhering to what God had called them to and remaining close with them, I am with you, says the Lord, and God makes himself known in that. I'll share something with you. When Cash shared before how God answers prayer, my wife went over with her niece and her two twins and, and little Vito, who's been to church a few times. And my wife says, Hun, she, asked, she asked Faith and, and some of the other kids and asked me, can, can you pray? Because we're waiting for the passports for the twins. And she said, okay, can you pray? Because one twin, the, the uh, Nola, she got her passport, but Latina, the other twin, didn't get hers. And we're like, oh yeah, that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, why, why would they deliver just one passport? They're twins. Applied at the same time, they're twins. Maybe you could just use the one for the both of them. I don't know. But so she sits and goes, can you please pray? And so we prayed. Yeah, sure, hun, we'll pray. We prayed. About two hours later, my wife comes back. What did you pray? Oh, we prayed that the passport would come. Oh, it's, it's arrived. Oh, praise God. Where was it? Oh, it ended up at the post office. She had to go down to the post office to pick it up, but it was there. All right. My wife asked again, can you pray? Because they were trying to get rid of her dad at the hospitals. They would send, her, send him home and things like this. And she asked us again, can you please pray? All right then. So we prayed, Lord, we, we wanted to be in the hospital. We don't want to go home because there's, they won't get care and all that sort of stuff. And we're praying. Wife calls the next day. Yeah, they're not letting him out. I just got here. They're not letting him out. And her sisters, who are not Christian, asked. Because my wife said to them, well, I prayed. I, got, I asked my family to pray that dad won't be released from the hospital for a few weeks. And she said, okay. They got to the hospital, walked in. He's got to stay in the hospital. They're not going to let him home. And then her sisters are sort of like, wow. But you see, look, when you prioritize the things of God within your life, he moves. Like I said, not as a reward. Not He's, he's not sitting there saying, oh, you, you've earned a lolly here, have this. No, it's because of his love for his children. That's it. He, he could choose to do however he wishes. See, the promise here for the people of God is that God's presence was there, that God would move amongst the people. That, that's what took place, presence that stirred the hearts of the leaders and moved them into action, the stirring of the hearts that drew them back to what's important and prioritized and fulfilling what they were called for. That's their calling. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 is one of my favorite verses because it was the Bible verse that was given to me the day I got baptized. But see, when you have the right focus, it affects every aspect of your life. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, I only know it in the King James. It says, The light of the body is the eye. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light, which basically means this, that if your eyes are fixed upon Jesus and everything that he's about, then irrespective of how it goes, you'll be filled with the light of the gospel that will handle whatever the situation is in front of you. And see, if I prayed and the passports didn't come, 
well, because I'm filled with the light of the gospel, it doesn't matter because I know that my God's got it in control and that he knows what he's doing. Does that make sense? Because you have the right focus then. It's focused on the things of God, which means for us to consider our ways regarding our calling, for us to consider our ways regarding our priorities, which means that if we as a church fail to meet the call and purpose for which we are here, we will experience similar things. We will experience frustration. We will experience discontentment. We will experience dissatisfaction with the things that take place around us. We will look together, but we won't reap much. We will look to feed, but we'll, we'll always be hungry. Even, even thirst, our thirst will never be quenched. Perhaps, just perhaps, our focus has drifted away from what Jesus has called us to do. And you know what Jesus has called you to do. You know. We know how we're supposed to treat each other within the family of God. We know that. We know we are supposed to love one another. We know we are supposed to accept. We know we are supposed to forgive. We know we are supposed to lay things aside. And I know Andrew Finn knows that too. I know that. But we know this, don't we? And, and if we know this and fail to act on it, then we will experience the same frustration, the same dissatisfaction, and the same discontentment in our Christian lives because we have made ourselves the priority and we've filled our own little paneled house to make us secure and to make us comfortable. If you want to know a way how not to get hurt, I remember saying, someone saying this to me, if you never want to get hurt, then don't make friends. If you never want to get hurt, then you stay in your house and never get involved in anybody else, with anyone else. You never want to get hurt? Fine. You do that. But when you do that, you know what happens? You know what happens to a person that's alone and isolated? You know what happens to a person that's soot, put in solitary confinement? They go crazy. They go crazy. And so you've got to ask yourself then, what are you called to and how do you fulfill that calling within the church? You want to know that, say, I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to do this. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved with each other. Get involved with the community. Get involved with your neighbors. Get involved with your, if you're older, with the younger people. If you're younger, with the older people. Get involved. We had a visitor that came over and she shared a photo of, of, with, with Julie and myself of a, a couple of prayer partners she has. She was maybe in her 20s. And she shared this photo, and it was these two elderly people, a husband and wife. They look like in their 80s or something. And she said, oh, every week she goes there, and they just pray with this elderly couple. She just prays with them, and then she goes off to her day for work. That's it. That's it. See, it's so easy just to be so content in our own little worlds and, and, and not be invested into somebody else. And, and this is where, no offense, like how younger people we could learn so much from you, uncles and aunties, because you've lived long lives. That sounds so bad. I'm sorry. But you've lived, you've lived. I won't say that again. But you've lived. And, and you, you, you know what it's like to raise kids. And you've got whole, so many young families that have kids now and that you could invest into. And, 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 and young families, there are so many older people here who you could ask. And, and now here's the thing. This is the disconnect that I've seen. 
and, and in my time here, the disconnect I've seen is, oh, they're young. They're young. Oh, they, they, they won't learn anything from you. Yeah, they will. And younger people are like, oh, but they're so old. I don't know what to say. Well, no, no, no. They've got plenty to say. It's a matter of, I think it should be like, well, they're old, but I don't want to listen. That's, that's probably what it's more along the lines of. But get, get involved. Get involved. Get involved in the gingerbread house. Get involved in the, in the carols that we're having here later on in the year. Get involved. I don't know. I, Brother Bill went to the local council meeting just recently. He shared that with us. He went to the local council meeting, which lasted how long, brother? How long did the meeting last? About six hours. Wow, praise God. Six hours. But he went to have a voice in the community. And so they now, Uncle Sun Ling, who's not here, everybody knows, as part of the strata stuff here, everyone knows who Uncle Sun Ling is. I'm sure everybody knows. I think everyone in Castle Hill knows who Uncle Sun Ling is. But get involved. Get involved. You won't know what God will do unless you put yourself out there. You don't know what God or how God will use you to bless and influence someone else. You won't know until you do something. You can either have your paneled house to make yourself comfortable or you can be about building the house of God that he's called us to build. Make sense? Get involved. There's a, uh, I watched a thing just recently. We talk about this at church. We talk about building a family. We talk about doing all sorts of stuff. And I, I saw this little video of an African-American principal who's invested into this, this school. It's really, it's in a lower socioeconomic area. And he's, he's investing into these kids' lives and he's sharing with them. And, and he said, he, he spoke with one young student. This young student says, yeah, 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 that's right. Um, the, the principal told me about being family. And he goes, yeah, that's right. Like my brothers and sisters. And he said, no. I said, I want you to build, uh, build the community like a family. And he goes, like brothers and sisters. And he said, no. He says, forget about me. I'll love you. And I thought, that's all right. I thought Pastor John would probably like that. But forget about me. I'll love you. Which is the whole premise of what the Christian faith is about. The love of Jesus toward us demonstrated on the cross had us in mind. And that same love is not about having us in mind, but having you in mind. It's about being others focused. It's like, forget about me and my needs. It's the scriptures teach that. Forget about me and my needs. What can I do to bless you? What can I do to encourage you? What can I do to build you up? What can I do to create a genuine friendship? What can I do to have fellowship with you? What can I do to, to, to love on you? Whether it be prayer, whether it be, whether it be phoning up someone, whether it be sending a message. It's all about, look, forget about me. I love you. That's what our church is to represent. So you want to you start somewhere? You want to start somewhere when it comes to considering your ways? When it, com- when it comes to, to, to rearranging and reassessing? You want to start somewhere when someone says to you, come on now, think about it. This is where it starts. It starts about being reconnected, not with a calling, but with a person. It starts with being reconnecting with Jesus. It's about being called to a person, not called to a command. About called to a person, not called to an instruction. About called to a person who loves us and pursues us. To relate to Him and the knowledge of that relationship, founded in love, demonstrated through sacrifice on a cross, established in a resurrection as He conquered death 
and sustained by His authority as He has called us and given us the privilege to cry out, Abba, Father. I think, and I, I have to admit, as I close, I have to admit, I have fallen into the trap at times of looking at the command and adhering to the command as opposed to I have a relationship and I want to demonstrate my love in that relationship. We are not called to a command. We are called to the Christ. And that is where we begin to fulfill our calling. So I leave you with this. Consider your ways. Consider your ways regarding your calling. Consider your ways regarding your priorities. I would love to invite some people up to pray. So I'll ask the music team to come up. And as the music team, if you'd like to be up standing, we'll sing our closing song. And at the end of the song, um, I'd like the prayer team to come forward. And if you want to be prayed for, if there are things that you need to be able to lay aside, things that you need to be able to deal with, things you want to commit to the Lord, then we would love to pray for you this morning. Okay, so with that, please be upstanding while we wait for the music team and we sing our closing song. While they're coming up, I want to remind you of one thing. Only two people came up about the secrets of the hat. And I think people are really fearful about coming up to get the secrets of the hat because they don't know. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. So I'll tell you what you're going to get into. The secrets of the hat here, these are names of people within the church. And if you come and take a name, then it is your responsibility within the church to pray for that person on this list, on the, on the piece of paper, to pray for them and to invite them over for a meal. So you can actually sit down and have a time of fellowship with that particular individual. That's what the secrets of the hat is. So I would love for somebody to come up and come afterwards, after we close in prayer, come up, grab a name. But don't grab a name just because you want to like, oh, I'll do it so Joel stops talking. Come up because you genuinely want to invest into the person that you pick out. I mean, some of the names here are people that don't come here anymore. But you can pray for them. You can still call them. You can still invite them for a feed. You can sit around and have fellowship with them. And if you don't have a house, if you're like a, a young person that has like your parents' house or anything like that, that's okay. Then take the feed over to their house. Just show up. Say, look, man, I want to come over. Come over. I've bought dinner with me. It's just KFC, but that's fine. But you take, if you're a young, if you can't get anywhere, if you can't, then I will allow team-ups. Find someone that has a car. Use them. Brad. I can't drive there. Can you drive me? Okay. Then Brad gets to know them too. And they're like, Brad, I don't have money to buy the food. Can you buy it? Yeah, Brad will do it. Okay. But this is the secret. I wasn't referring to Cass. I wasn't referring. <laughs> Not now, anyway. Okay. So, all right. So this is what this. So you come and see me. You come and see me. You want to build community. You want to be family where it says, forget about me. I love you. Well, it starts the simple act. Come and get a name. Okay. So with that, over to you guys. Thanks, Pastor.